Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, What more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder... Sometimes a crime is so brutal that there's no choice but to dole out the most severe punishment available. On February 29th, 2000, a woman committed a horrific crime against a man who, despite all he knew of her history, entered in a relationship that would end up costing him his life. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Catherine Mary Knight was born on October 24th, 1955, and immediately thrust into what was described as an unconventional and dysfunctional home life. Her mother Barbara had an affair with a man named Ken Knight, the co-worker of her then-husband, and when the news was made public, she was forced to move to Moree, New South Wales. None of her four sons went with her, the two eldest staying with their father, and the younger two went to live with an aunt in Sydney, And with Ken, Barbara welcomed four more children into her life, Catherine Knight being one half of a pair of twin girls. Then, when she was just four years old, her mother's first husband, Jack, suddenly passed away, and her older two half-brothers, whom she never really spent any real time with, now moved in with the family full-time. In addition to this sudden change, Catherine was raised by a violent alcoholic, who would rape her mother up to 10 times per day. And Barbara, for some reason, decided to reveal all the intimate details of her life to her young daughters, including the fact that she hated sex and hated men. Completely shaping the future of her children, later when Catherine had partners of her own and would come to her mother to complain about the act of sex, Barbara would tell her to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Catherine, to make matters even worse, later claimed that she was sexually assaulted by several members of her own family until she was 11 years old. Now, in addition to those very clear intimacy and sexual issues dealt with from a very young age, Catherine, whose great-great-grandmother was an indigenous Australian, was raised in a house with a mother who very proudly identified as Aboriginal. Though this was kept a secret due to the considerable racism in the area at the time, reports claimed that this family lineage became a source of tension for Barbara's children. Then in 1969, Catherine's uncle, Oscar Knight, 
one of the only other people she was close with besides her twin sister, took his own life, completely devastating the young girl and causing her further turmoil. She even, for years, claimed that the man's ghost came and visited her. Moving to Aberdeen the same year she lost her uncle, Catherine, now attending school, was considered a loner and was remembered by classmates as a person who would bully those who were smaller than her. She even assaulted a young boy at school with a weapon, and when a teacher injured her, they insisted that it was self-defense. But when she wasn't being sent into a fit of rage, Catherine could also be described as a model student who even won awards for her good behavior. With a Jekyll and Hyde type change in personality, Catherine struggled and finally, when she was just 15 years old, she decided to drop out of school, having never learned to read or write, and gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. Then, just about a year later, she started what she called her, quote, dream job and began cutting up oval at a local abattoir and later was promoted to boning and given her own set of butcher's knives, which she displayed proudly over her bed. So as she claimed, they, quote, would always be handy if I needed them. She, until her eventual incarceration, would take these knives with her wherever she lived. In 1973, she met co-worker David Stanford Collette, a man who eventually lost his job and worsened his already pretty bad drinking habits. Getting another job at the abattoir, Catherine found herself smitten with David, often engaging in physical altercations to back him up in fights. The pair married in 1974 and, at her request, arrived at their service in her motorcycle with a drunken David driving. On their wedding day, Barbara gave her new son-in-law the following advice. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. That night, Catherine added weight to her mother's warning when, after only having sexual intercourse three times and falling asleep, she tried to strangle her new husband. This was only the beginning for this truly violent union. And on one occasion, Catherine, when David stayed out playing darts too late, burned all of his clothing before hitting him across the back of his head with a frying pan. She was heavily pregnant at the time. David fled to a neighbor's home and, collapsing, had to be treated for a severely fractured skull. Though charges were never filed, Catherine, changing her behavior convinced her husband to drop the case. But by May of 1976, he had truly had enough. And just before the birth of their first child, he left his wife for another woman and moved to Queensland. The next day, Catherine was seen pushing her newborn in a stroller and suddenly, violently throwing the entire thing from side to side. She was admitted to a hospital in Tamworth where she was officially diagnosed with postnatal depression. After spending several weeks in recovery, Catherine, upon release, placed her now two-month-old on a railway line shortly before the train was due, stole an axe, and went into town where she threatened the lives of several passers-by. Thankfully, a local man referred to as Old Ted found the baby while foraging near the railway line and brought her into safety. 
Catherine was once again arrested and taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, where she signed herself out the following day. Just a few days after this incident, she slashed the face of a woman with one of her beloved knives and demanded that she be driven to Queensland so she could find David Collette. The woman managed to escape at a service station, but by the time police arrived, Catherine had already taken a young boy hostage and was threatening his life. Quickly disarmed and attacked with brooms, she was admitted to a psychiatric hospital where she told the nurses that she intended on killing the mechanic at the station because, by repairing David's car, he allowed her husband to leave her and their new baby. Her plan was, once she arrived in Queensland, to kill both David and his mother. When informing him of the incident, David surprisingly left his girlfriend and moved back to Aberdeen with his mother to try and help support his wife. Released into the care of her mother-in-law and husband on August 9, 1976, Catherine was moved to Ipswich, where she got a job at Dinmore Meatworks. On March 6, 1980, despite all that had already happened, the couple welcomed their second daughter. The reunion between the couple soured almost immediately, and Catherine, who continued to fly into violent rages, began physically assaulting her husband with her fists and basically anything she could get her hands on. Then one day in 1984, Catherine packed up her two daughters and just disappeared from David's life. Now living with her parents on a farm outside Aberdeen and back working at the Arbitois, things didn't last very long, and shortly after her arrival, she and her children moved to a rented property in Musselbrook, where a year later, she was forced to stop the work that she loved when her back gave out on her entirely. Now out of a job completely, she was placed in government housing and given a pension. Though things had suddenly changed for Catherine, it seemed that this new lifestyle suited her quite nicely. All she needed now was a new man in her life. After a handful of duds, Catherine met 36-year-old minor Dave Saunders at a local hotel in 1986. And just a few months later, he moved in with her and her daughters. Unfortunately, Catherine found issues with this new relationship too. And jealous, she often threw David out and eventually he moved back to his own apartment. But always finding him and begging him to return, in May of 1987, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingo pup right in front of him just to show him what would happen if he ever decided to have an affair. She then knocked him unconscious with a frying pan. In June of 1988, the pair had a daughter, and David, with this growing family in mind, put a deposit down on a house, and Catherine paid the rest with what she made through her workers' compensation. Decorating the home, she filled the entire thing with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks making sure no space, including the ceilings, were left uncovered. After one particular argument, Catherine hit David Saunders in the face with an iron and stabbed him in the abdomen with a pair of scissors. Fed up finally, he moved back to Scone, and when he once again came back to Aberdeen, he found that she had cut up all his clothing in his absence. Taking a long service leave, 
he decided that he needed to go into hiding if he wanted to truly rid himself of Catherine Knight. Though she tried to find him, he managed to stay hidden for several months until he returned to see his daughter. When he did, he found that Catherine had reported him to the police and, saying that she was afraid of him, had been issued an apprehended violence order against David. A few years later, in 1991, Catherine became pregnant for a fourth time by a former co-worker named John Chillingworth. Giving birth to her first son, their relationship lasted for three years until she left him for a man she was having an affair with named John Charles Thomas Price. Upon meeting Catherine Knight, a chance occurrence that would end up costing him his life, John was a father of three and reportedly was a, quote, terrific bloke who was liked by everyone who knew him. His marriage ending in 1988, John's youngest child stayed with his former wife, while his two older children lived with him and, despite the local talk about Catherine's violent nature, he allowed her to move into his home with them in 1995. Things initially seemed to go really well for this blended family. John's children liked Catherine, and apart from their sometimes violent arguments, John made decent money, and their new lives together were described as a, quote, bunch of roses. That was until in 1998, John refused to marry Catherine, and in retaliation, she videotaped a number of items that he allegedly stole from work and sent it to his bosses. Although these were all out-of-date medical kits that he took from the company's trash, John was fired from the job that he held for over 17 years. And absolutely furious, he kicked Catherine out of his home. Before long, news about what she did spread through the town. But for whatever reason, John restarted their relationship just a few months later. However, this time, he refused to allow her to move in. This did nothing to stop the endless fighting, and eventually, the people in John's life started to distance themselves from the couple. They knew it was only a matter of time before the bubbling tensions finally exploded. And that's exactly what happened in February of 2000. On the 29th, John stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way into work and took out a restraining order against Catherine Knight. Hoping this would finally keep her away from both him and his children, that afternoon, he told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, it would be because Catherine had finally killed him. Despite their pleas for him to stay with them and not to go home, John, fearing what she might do to his children, made his way back to his house. What he didn't know was that Catherine, aware he had gone to the police, had begun making plans of her very own. With her beloved butcher's knives sharpened and with a brand new black negligee, Catherine waited for the right moment and made her way over to John's home. Having sent his children off to a sleepover, John fell asleep watching television and was woken up by Catherine in his home wanting to have sex. She had already been inside for a while, had watched television while he slept, and took a shower before ever waking him up. Once finished, John fell back asleep and never again saw the light of day. At around 6 a.m. the next day, a neighbor got worried when they noticed that John's car was still in the driveway. Usually at work by this time, his employer noticed his absence too and sent another worker to the house to see what was going on. Both the neighbor and the co-worker knocked on the bedroom window to try and wake him, 
But looking a little more closely at the front door, they quickly called police when they noticed what appeared to be blood. John Price was found lying in a pool of his own blood with several stab wounds to his body. Lying nearby was a comatose Catherine Knight, who, after stabbing her partner to death with her butcher knives, took a large number of pills and drifted off to sleep. From what forensics could determine, after the initial wounds were made, John woke up and tried to reach for the light. As she continued bringing the knife down upon him, he tried to get up and escape, but was chased throughout his home. Making it out the front door and onto the yard, he either stumbled back inside or was dragged by his attacker. He was stabbed a total of 37 times. After watching him bleed to death, Catherine then went to the ATM and withdrew $1,000 from his account. Coming back to the house, she then skinned his body and hung it from a meat hook placed on the door in the lounge. Reverting back to her time at the abattoir, Catherine decapitated John, cooked parts of his body, and served up the meat with a baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She set up two place settings, and next to each, she wrote a note for one of John's two children. She planned on serving the meal to them, but was caught before that could happen. A third meal was thrown out onto the backyard for unknown reasons, leading to speculation that she tried to eat it, but could not finish. And still in the warm pot, along with the vegetables, was John Price's head. She then took what was left of his body, draped his arm over an empty soft drink bottle, crossed his legs, and left it with a handwritten note on top of a photo of John. Covered in small bits of flesh, in it, she accused John of raping her daughter. Accusations that were found to be groundless. When finally woken, Catherine claimed she had no memory of the brutal crime she committed. Rejecting the plea bargain offered, Catherine was arraigned on March 2nd, 2001 and charged with murder. However, she eventually changed her plea to guilty, and after a psychiatric assessment was ordered to ensure she understood the consequences of her plea, two doctors diagnosed Catherine with borderline personality disorder, and on November 8th, the judge sentenced her to life imprisonment due in large part to her complete lack of remorse. He then ordered her papers to be marked, quote, never to be released, which was the first time this had been done to a woman in Australian history. Her 2006 appeal was dismissed, and Catherine Mary Knight, as far as the sources claim, remains in prison to this day. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder, and thank you to Yelena and Bella Ringa Beef on Instagram for suggesting today's story. Please join me again tomorrow to hear a terrible thing happened on March 1st. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you liked it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.